in Northwest Detroit, there's this neighborhood. It's called Garden Homes Community. Mostly Black people live there in single-family homes with leafy, tree-lined backyards. And through some of those backyards stretches a concrete wall. It's been there for more than 80 years. I'm standing by the wall. It's concrete, and it has thick columns every, we'll say, 10 feet. Our contributor, Timothy Jagalow, paid a visit to the wall on a recent afternoon. Sections of it are plain gray concrete. Some sections are painted white. When it was built in 1941, the walls stretched for half a mile. It's six feet high, a foot thick, and these days it's pretty overgrown with branches and shrubs. Folks who live in garden homes now probably don't think much about the wall or why it's there. Unless they visit the neighborhood park, the wall also runs through. The section that goes through the park is painted with murals, really colorful murals. They share like a, a vibrant, high contrast, simple kind of blocky look to them. Some of the mural is kind of just abstract, but some of it um, has kind of a, a historical social justice theme to it. Um, there's some people carrying picket signs. The murals hint at the wall's history, how it was built to separate black homeowners from white ones with the full blessing of the federal government. From the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University, this is the Arc of Justice, From Here to Equality, a special series from the podcast Ways and Means. We look at the vastly different financial fortunes of Black and white Americans, how this wealth gap was created, and how we might begin to close it. I'm Lindsay Foster Thomas. Today, how the federal government helped usher in a new era of home ownership while sanctioning racial segregation and the destruction of black neighborhoods. It's a chilly Friday afternoon, and two girls are playing basketball in Alfonso Wells Memorial Park in Northwest Detroit. Right next to them is the city's infamous eight mile wall. Timothy Jagalow has come out to the park to find out how much local residents know about the wall. What do you know about the wall? Do you know why it was built? I think it was built for separation. That's Alexis Jenkins. Her grandmother lives nearby. What do you mean by that? Like blacks and whites. That's why I think it was built because it been there for like a really, really long time. Okay. This wall, it goes by several names. Some people call it the Eight Mile Wall, some call it the Burwood Wall. It's also been called Detroit's Wailing Wall. But there's no mystery about what purpose it served. And it's no big surprise communities were segregated by race in the 1940s. But the wall's origin story builds on a recurring narrative in American history that the U.S. government was a primary perpetrator of deepening the racial wealth gap. Kenneth Johnson grew up near the wall. He remembers playing there as a child. It was just, you know, part of the landscape. That is until he learned 
why it was built. <laughs> kids are kids, right? And to feel rejected or ostracized or, you know, um, or to be told to get out of here, in which we were told that sometimes, you're not supposed to be over here, this kind of thing. So what I would do, I'm, I'm being honest, what I would do along with some of my friends, we would uh, tie cans on our, on our bicycles and we would ride through the neighborhood making all kind of calamitous noise to irritate, <laughs> to, to irritate the people who told us we couldn't come in. And they would be angry and upset. Well, my thing was, now you know how we feel that we can't come in your neighborhood or your community. Kenneth belongs to a group called the Eight Mile Old Timers Club. He says his community was close-knit when he was growing up. It had to be. Back when the Burwood Wall was built in 1941, racially restrictive covenants kept Black potential homeowners from renting or purchasing property in 80% of the city. And this is one little square of real estate, along with five other little pieces of land in Detroit, where African Americans could purchase or rent property. This is Gerald Van Dusen. He's the author of Detroit's Burwood Wall, Hatred and Healing in the West Eight Mile Community. When they did purchase these little lots, they sought out uh, bank loans. But the the bankers, even the Black-owned banks who were trying to survive, they uh, were unable to offer loans to these Black tenants. And there's more. Because Black residents were often denied home loans, many Black homes were self-built. I was uh, just turned four years old when I moved into the community. We had moved from a project, a project called the Jeffries Project. And so when we moved in, we moved into a brand new house. It was, it was just built. No one had lived there before. And it was our neighbor. He and some other people had built that house. They constructed that house. Okay, fine. Don't give me a loan to buy a house. I'll build one myself. Uh-uh-uh. Because the homes were self-built, local housing authorities would often deem these houses not up to code. The Federal Housing Administration and local housing authorities outlined neighborhoods they considered to be bad investments in red ink on city survey maps. Those red marks running through Black neighborhoods gave rise to the phrase redlining. Better equipped to explain are Duke professor William Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen, an arts consultant and folklorist. They're co-authors of the book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. All right, so you guys know about this famous wall in Detroit, the Eight Mile Wall or the Burwood Wall, as some people call it, built in 1941. Was this wall the result of redlining? Yeah. You know, this is a situation where local people were not content to have those red lines exist solely on paper. They needed a physical wall to create that line of demarcation between the black and the white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by constructing the wall, they could ensure that on one side of the wall you had an all-white neighborhood, and this would be a neighborhood that would be a prime site for additional bank loans that were denied the folks who were black living on the other side of the wall. And in fact, you could even argue that the black residents 
on their side of the wall were subjected to credit starvation by the banking system. Mm. Uh, so the federal policy of redlining was something that was really important in uh, justifying the establishment of this wall. Like Kirsten and Sandy, John Kimball has studied how the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, promoted segregation. The economists at the FHA, the chief economists, thought that racial integration was sort of a natural evil. And these aren't my words. These are things that they wrote in, in industry articles, in industry publications, and in government memos, that racial integration would threaten the long-term value of the homes because they took it as a sort of a given truth that racial integration was unnatural. Sandy Darity says the FHA didn't act alone. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you could describe redlining as a public-private partnership because the federal government plays a key role in designating specific neighborhoods as being either A, B, C, or D quality for lending. And then the private banks follow suit in terms of their own credit allocation practices based upon the designations that the federal government had provided them with. It became a rationalization or a justification for lending disproportionately to predominantly white uh, residents of predominantly white neighborhoods. Yes. And when the black neighborhoods fell into disrepair, this provided visual evidence to whites, that black people were irresponsible, uh, had different values from their own, and fed into the fears that black people would come into the neighborhood and ruin what they had worked so hard to build. And I'm just curious, okay, you use the word desirable, but like how explicit was the language and the application that encouraged segregation coming from the Federal Housing Administration. Well, they would literally apply alphabet letter scores to neighborhoods. Mm. And uh, if you were a, a neighborhood that was was de- designated as being a desirable lending site, the most desirable, you would get a letter A. Uh, and this ran from B, C, and D. And uh, the predominantly black neighborhoods were invariably assigned a D score. Um you know, they might be assigned to C, but they were definitely uh, specified as being less desirable sites for lending. Uh, but the central characteristic that dictated which alphabet score you got was the racial composition of the neighborhood. Indeed, there was nothing subtle about the FHA's support of segregation. Here's John Kimball. The government set about a very, very detailed nationwide regime of teaching banks um, and requiring banks to only make loans to segregated white communities. And um, for city planners, they taught them how to build those communities, how to ensure that they remained white, and also to work to contain black migrants to cities in specific designated areas of the city. Um, Even more specifically, to support this redlining project, the FHA had appraisal forms that it required banks to use when it was appraising the value of a home that someone was trying to purchase and get a loan for. And that appraisal form included questions like, is there a Negro invasion of the neighborhood or the potential for a Negro invasion of the neighborhood? And then if you answered yes to those questions, you couldn't get a loan. 
In the early 1940s, Detroit was growing, and developers saw a chance, a chance to build a new, middle-class white neighborhood in the northwest part of the city. The FHA refused to back the project because it bordered Garden Homes, a black neighborhood. FHA support was key because home loans depended on FHA insurance. Then the landowners and a local developer, Harry Slatkin, suggested this six-foot concrete barrier to separate the new white community from the existing black one. And with that change, the FHA agreed to support the project. Slatkin argued that the wall would, quote, protect the new development. Here's Gerald Van Dusen again. He thought that uh, by walling off the African-American community, uh, that he was um, ensuring the uh, likelihood that the uh, property values would uh, be maintained. The Burwood Wall was just one example of federal government-sanctioned segregation. Across the country, FHA-backed loans financed thousands of new subdivisions for whites in the early 20th century. Those neighborhoods were powered by something new, FHA-backed 30-year mortgages. And as the Depression was waning, those government interventions helped usher thousands of Americans into the middle class for the first time. White Americans, that is. I think it's important to not only take into account the, uh, the Federal Housing Administration, but also the GI Bill in the aftermath of World War II, which had provisions to support home buying on the part of the returning veterans. And I think if we take those, uh, those two policies in conjunction, we have the foundation for the most dramatic uh, effort that the United States government has ever performed uh, since the Homestead Acts uh, to create an extensive middle class in the United States. So uh, both of those laws were very instrumental in uh, producing social mobility, but it's upward social mobility that was clearly intended largely for white Americans and not for black Americans. The most egregious racism in home lending was declared illegal in 1968, with the passing of the Fair Housing Act. But by then... The damage was done, and I think that the process of uh, comparative credit starvation for predominantly black neighborhoods has continued. The federal government didn't just promote segregation in the early 20th century. The damage went even deeper. Let's travel now to Memphis, home of Robert R. Church Sr., the South's first black millionaire. After he gained freedom from enslavement, Church made his way to Memphis, where he made a fortune. While amassing a great deal of wealth as a banker and real estate mogul, he built up the legendary Beale Street District and built a lavish residence. It was a grand Victorian home. Oh, I'm sorry, not Victorian, Queen Anne. Uh, the first Queen Anne-style home in the city of Memphis. And when it was built, uh, it was so spectacular that it was uh, described in the daily white newspapers. And that was quite unusual. 
Elaine Turner owns a Black history tour company in Memphis, Heritage Tours. She first learned of Robert R. Church and the Church family estate while researching local history. She says that at the turn of the century, the church mansion was the heart of an integrated community on Lauderdale Street in downtown Memphis. Lauderdale Street was a, a community. That, that entire area was a, a mixed uh, community. There was um, one, a, an attorney, a Black attorney, who lived on that street. There was um, a person who was, who was a city alderman. It was an, it was an upscale neighborhood, as you would uh, say. Elaine grew up in Memphis, with the church family legacy echoing all around her. But she was unaware. As a child growing up in Memphis, I went to church's auditorium and the big carnivals and all of that that took place at the church park. So that's all I do as far as the church family and their contributions. There's a reason Elaine didn't grow up learning about the church family. After Robert Church Sr.'s death, his son, Robert Church Jr., grew the family fortune by getting into politics. Generational wealth was in play. Jr. worked closely with another local power broker, a white man, Edward Holt Crump, better known as Boss Crump. Robert Church Jr. helped Boss Crump get elected as mayor of Memphis by rallying Black voter support. In exchange, Boss Crump let Robert Church Jr., get by without paying property taxes. For a while. By the late 1930s, though, the two men's unlikely alliance was starting to fray. And that's when the city decided to collect, at the urging of Boss Crump. They had already um, taken all of the church family properties, which was about 300 pieces of property that the church family owned. So by that time, all of the uh, those uh, buildings and businesses or whatever was there had been taken over with heavy taxes by the city. That seizure included Robert Church's majestic home. The church mansion wasn't just a solitary symbol of Black wealth. Its presence in the community also drove up property values of nearby homes. But that didn't last. After the city seized the church family's property, it came for the surrounding community with a new policy called slum clearance. Lovely upper middle class black homes were declared squalid and raised. And when you look at photographs of the homes that were targeted by this slum clearance, they're grand homes, they're, they're beautiful houses. This is Preston Lauterbach. He's author of the book, Beale Street Dynasty. Memphis had plenty of slums that it could have cleared at that time, and did. But the area uh, on the south part of downtown around Beale Street and around the Robert Church home was a, a beautiful neighborhood of not terribly old homes. They would have been maybe 50 years old at that time. So the people who lost their homes in this slum clearance, many were moved to other areas of, of the city, you know, if they could afford it. That's another issue with slum clearance. You can imagine what the market rate for a house in a quote-unquote slum clearance area would have been. This was a time when, you know, many of them had just gotten to the point where they had paid off their mortgages and were beginning to make 
you know, substantial renovations to their properties, making, you know, improvements. And then along comes the city and, you know, all of that is for naught. The city cleared 46 acres along Lauderdale Street, right across the street from the church mansion. On that land, the Memphis Housing Authority started building something different, public housing. By February 1953, the church mansion looked out over a 900-unit low-rise public housing project. The mansion itself was vacant. At the time, the Memphis uh, Fire Department was experimenting uh, with a new fire extinguisher. So uh, the project was, I suppose, let's use the church mansion for this purpose of training uh, the firemen of how to demolish a structure such as that. There are photographs of this event. You can see the onlookers, you know, right outside on the sidewalk on the street, packed around watching this taking place. But uh, the, the house was actually set on fire. And then one set of equipment was tested and the house was put out. The fire was put out. And then it was set on fire again to test some different kind of equipment. And this continued uh, throughout the course of a couple of days until all that was left of, of the mansion uh, was a, a smoking heap of rubble. At the time of the fire, Roberta Church, granddaughter of Robert Church Sr., was living in Washington, D.C. She was working for the Eisenhower administration. Years later, Elaine Turner met Roberta Church, and the burning of the family home was still vivid in her mind. She had received a picture of the family home, the mansion, uh, that was in the daily white newspaper, the Commercial Appeal, and it showed the picture of that mansion in flames. She was very sad in uh, looking at that picture, but she says this is what they did. They burned down our home. The fire was devastating to Memphis's Black community. That's in a message that uh, uh, the white community was in charge. They could do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, they could uh, acquire all of your properties. They could demolish a whole community that was thriving, a middle-class community, upper-middle-class community. And there's nothing that you could say about it. And when, you know, you decide that, uh, you know, you'll just use this house to burn it down for everybody to see, put it on the front page of the newspaper, and yes, this is what we did. And the church family uh, legacy is no more because there's nothing else left. The thriving, integrated neighborhood that used to exist on Lauderdale Street that's gone forever. There are some sections of the city where there's uh, integrated neighborhoods, but primarily it's uh, the neighborhoods are segregated. Now, that area where the church mansion was, um, it is now predominantly African-American. So all of that area is um, still seg is segregated now. There's a lot of blight. Enforcing segregation, denying credit, 
destroying black wealth. Duke historian Adrian Lynn Smith says, many parties bear the blame for how housing policy has hurt black Americans, but the federal government leads the list. The, the Federal Housing Administration made policy that had an effect, but it set a tone and legitimized practices, and that had an effect too. So in some ways, there are many fingers to be pointed, but even with the other players involved, a lot of the influence tracks back to what the Federal Housing Administration asked and or told and or required folks to do. So if we're thinking about housing as one of the keys to wealth, as a key to a middle-class life, how has government action on housing policy impeded access to the middle class for Black people? The central type of federal policy for asset-building purposes in the 20th century, uh, unlike the 19th century where the focus was on land, the central focus in the 20th century has been on promoting home ownership. And this has been very, very significant in terms of the development of, in particular, the white middle class in the United States. And that legacy of housing discrimination that the federal government helped launch, it lives on. Paul and Tanisha Tate Austin are third-generation California residents. They were excited to buy their first home in Marin County, California, in 2016. The house needed updating, though. So the couple added more than 1,000 square feet of space, plus a new deck, a fireplace, and an entire new floor. They couldn't wait to learn how much their home improvements had increased the value of their property. The appraiser was an older white woman. She came back very low. Um, to say the least. She came back underneath a million dollars. The appraisal was just $100,000 more than the couple had paid for the house. And that was after spending $400,000 on renovations. So the Tate Austins got creative. They scheduled a new appraisal. But this time, they asked a white friend to pose as the owner of the home. I'm going to have my friend come over and pretend like she's me and see what comes of it. Um, so yeah. we took off all of our art off the wall, which depict like, you know, Black people, um, took down all of our pictures. And then my friend brought a picture, just one single picture of her, her husband and her son when he was a baby walking on the beach. The result? The house appraised for significantly more. Yeah, almost 1.5, a $500,000 difference. The Tate Austins were relieved that all their hard work and investment will pay off after all. But still... I would hope that it wouldn't have to be white families here that would impact the value, right? Like the home should be valued for actual property. It shouldn't be based off of the race of the person who occupies it or who owns it. Next time, Providing for America's Veterans, we'll take a look at one single policy, how that policy was implemented, and how it affected white Americans and Black Americans, the GI Bill. I mean, it was unprecedented, and, and many have argued that no other policy, no other social policy in U.S. history has done so much to elevate citizens to the middle class. 
as the documents show, as the history shows, that boost wasn't available to all people in the same way. The government provided extra resources for many, many, many white Americans and very few Black Americans. The Arc of Justice from Here to Equality is produced by the Ways and Means podcast from the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University and North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. It's co-produced by Duke professor William Sandy Darity Jr. and folklorist and arts consultant Kirsten Mullen. Their book is From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. We have show notes, an episode discussion guide, and full credits for the series at our website, waysandmeansshow.org. This episode was produced by Allison Jones, Stacia Brown, Carol Jackson, and Malu Fusan Nori, with Candace Manriquez-Wren, Matt Majak, Aaron Blanding, Timothy Jagalow, and Johnny Vince Evans. Original music for this episode was produced by youth in Durham, North Carolina, in collaboration with Black Space and Only Us, featuring music from King Sean, Lil Monster, Zone, and Jam. Additional original music by Solomon Fox, appearing courtesy of Forging the Musical Future, FTMF Talent. Season six of Ways and Means is made possible through support from the Duke Office for Faculty Advancement, thanks to funding from the Duke Endowment. So what do you think of the season so far? I would love it if you left us a review. No, really, I would love it. Or tweet at us at Ways and Means Show. Until next time, I'm Lindsay Foster Thomas. There's a lot to appreciate about the natural world around us. But take a closer look, and nature will start to reveal an unexpected side. Invasive creatures with origin stories that start thousands of miles away. Creep is a podcast devoted to their impressive survival and their impact on our lives. Listen and subscribe on your favorite audio app. Learn more at wunc.org creep.